Two weeks ago, I introduced a two-part sermon. This is going to be the second part today. In this sermon, we're going to talk about what, what is unquestionably the most important thing for any believer, you or I, to do. It should be our mission statement for every single Christian. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind. And the second part of it, our part of it is we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus goes on to say, and all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And I think it's fair to say and appropriate to say that by extension, all the New Testament hangs on those two commandments. I introduced that story, uh, that sermon, by beginning a story called uh, my Eleanor story. My wife's family, her grandparent, her grandfather and brothers emigrated from the Ukraine in 1913. Two of them stayed in New York. After a few years, her grandfather moved to Michigan. That's where she was born and raised. So when we went to take a church leaving Green Bay, Wisconsin, and going to New Jersey, Pam wanted to rekindle her relationship with her relatives out there. Eleanor was a first cousin of her father. She was, she's an older generation. And I had met Eleanor a few times, and she fit to a T my default picture of what a New Yorker is. Brash, loud, obnoxious. She could have been in one of those movies that we've all seen as kids growing up about New Yorkers. Needless to say, I wasn't a, didn't particularly enjoy being around Eleanor. My wife being, of course, a very compassionate, empathetic person, which is maybe why she married me. <laughs> um, she would go visit Eleanor, and I would, on, on occasion, when I could, go visit her with her. Now, Eleanor had emphysema. It's a terminal disease, you, I'm sure you're all aware. It takes you years to die. It's what her mother was dying uh, from, even as we were moving to New Jersey. She died a couple years after we moved there. So Eleanor was a little bit later in that process, so we knew the process very well, the challenges that Eleanor would, Eleanor would face. Eleanor was a retired nurse and uh, retired because of medical reasons. So Pam would go there and drive her to the things she needed to go, shopping, uh, uh, to, to a uh, doctor's office, a doctor's appointment. And Eleanor also had this awful little critter named Sonny, a cat. Some of you who are wise and have the gift of discernment might realize that I'm not exactly a cat person. The clever among you. Amongst Dave. And I remember going over, this is by the way, the George Washington Bridge. Goes over the Hudson River to New York City. And I remember being right on that bridge, dreading having to go visit Eleanor. And as I'm on that bridge, these verses are literally going through my mind. That's why I put it up there. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our strength and our mind. And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, is Eleanor my neighbor? <laughs> and I'm dreading going over there into Highway 9 and going north. He actually lived in Yonkers, but you couldn't tell where New York started or ended and Yonkers began. It's the same place. And we began a ministry of help to Eleanor. Now, she didn't know the Lord as her Savior, so we certainly wanted to be a witness to it. But as I shared the gospel with her and she let me do it, it was a clear wall that came down. No, not interested. She was in uh, her older religion, and I think as time went on, we realized it was purely cultural. She really didn't 
have particularly a faith. So we got to work with Eleanor, and this went on for years, by the way, years. But it reminded me so much of this command, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And there's three places in the Bible that it's uh, mentioned in the Gospels and in Leviticus 19.18, which quotes it. And the second commandment is like it, like the love of God. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. What an impacting thing. These are the greatest commandments, Jesus says to us. So it begs the question, what does love mean? I shared a little bit of what the words meant as you define them out. Love and heart and strength and mind. Coming from Deuteronomy 6.5, which is where the passage originates, that, that is quoted, where Jews would often put in these little boxes on their heads called phylacteries. Often they'd put Deuteronomy 6.5 there and also on their wrist, Leviticus 19.18, where, where it says you should love your neighbor. So if you look at all these Hebrew and Greek words and look at all their various meanings, some of these words are alike, but they're also distinctive things about each word. That's why they're all mentioned and it isn't just love God with all your heart. It's with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. When you put all those thoughts together, all the Hebrew and Greek words, you come up with something like this to describe what love meant. We're to love God and others with all our mind. That's all our thoughts, all of our emotion, our feelings. All of our conscience, our good conscience, uh, with all our will, our volitional will, we, what we choose and what we don't choose to do, with all our strength, the required ability that God gives us to do the things he commands us to do, with all our reason, with all our rational thought, indeed with our very souls, with the very breath of our lives. That Hebrew word, nathish, from Deuteronomy 6.5, in its root meaning means throat, our breath of life. It's our very being who we are. We are to love God completely. What you're seeing here in these commands is really a description of how God loves you and I. God loves us wholly and completely, and he wants us to have that kind of love for others. It begs the question, why do we love? Well, we love in 1 John 4.19 because he first loved us. There's many scriptures throughout the Bible, the New Testament, that describe love, particularly the New Testament, none more so than 1 John. In that little dinky epistle of just five chapters, I counted 46 times that the word love was used, and it's the Greek word agapao, which Christians kind of elevated in the uh, earlier world of, of the Greek world. Uh, it was very difficult for Greek scholars to find uses of that word in what's called the papyri, the letters of that time uh, made out of reeds. There's thousands of these things that we've collected in, in out through the Middle East, and very few examples of that word used. But one of the examples that has been found, it's used to describe a love a parent has for an only child. Imagine that kind of love. And we love because God first loved us. I don't love with the love that's in me. I love with the, God, with the love that God has put in me. And I love a little earlier in 1 John, Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. What a wonderful word. What a wonderful word picture. God doesn't simply love you. God lavishes his love on you. Think about that. Being lavished by the creator of the universe who has a love of his whole being for you, a love that we can only begin to imagine. We love because he first loved us. This brings up the lesson of the pumpkin. 
I love a story that a woman tells when one of her coworkers asked her, what is it like to be a Christian? What does that mean? Well, she said, to be a Christian is like a pumpkin. God takes us, picks us out of the patch. He washes away all the dirt on us, gets rid of all the dirt, cuts off the top, and then digs inside, moves all the gunk and the yucky stuff out, the, the seeds of deceit and despair and malice and hopelessness, of, of lust, of vile behavior, digs those things out of us. Then he carves a smile on our face, and then he puts a light inside of us. That light is not our light. It is his light he put in us. I didn't love Eleanor with my love. I loved Eleanor with the love that God put in me. So who do we love? Well, that question is answered quite significantly in, in the following subsequent scripture of these great commandments, which goes into the Good Samaritan story. I'm not going to relate that story. I'm sure all you all know it. But it's clearly we love our neighbor. And who is our neighbor? Well, at the end of that passage, it says anybody in need. But it isn't just in need. It's anybody at all that we come across with. It's for people that we like. It's for people that we don't like. It's for people that are like us, for people that are very dissimilar from us. It's for people from the wonderful city of Marquette, Michigan, and even from New York City. We are to love all. We are to love our neighbor. And Jesus adds this extra thing. We are especially to love our fellow believers. And he says in John 13, 34, in the uproom discourse, a new commandment I give you, love one another. So that begs, how do we love? A new command I give you. Wait a minute, that's not a new command. It goes back to Deuteronomy 6.5. Moses wrote that in 1400 B.C. This is a very old commandment. But really, is it? He says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you want, if you love one another. What's the new thing? Well, the new thing about this commandment is, it, is that it introduces a new, higher quality of love. He, Jesus says, as I have loved you. Not, in other words, not the love that you have in you, but as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He elevated that quality of life. He commands us to love each other the same way that he loves us. What a great thing that is. I loved my family. I loved, my, loved Eleanor with the kind of love that God put in me, a love that I never would have had on my own, believe me. We love others because Christ put his love inside of us. Thinking about all these floods that are occurring right now, when I was young, I worked a little bit on Mackerel Island with the Boy Scouts. My wife also worked there for a little while as a waitress. And in my perfect world, which is, by the way, doesn't exist, but in my perfect world, I would live every summer on Mackinac Island and every winter on Kauai. <laughs> Probably many of you might have a similar feeling as I would, at least about Kauai. And when we moved out to New Jersey, there were a number of things I was not clearly made aware, with, aware of. The search committee didn't exactly do the perfect job. They neglected to tell us that when you live in New Jersey, you're subject to something called hurricanes. 
and they come blasting through, even though we were some miles from the coast, it didn't make any difference. At least about three times on average every year, Pam and I discovered we got our dream. We were living on an island. <laughs> there were times, no matter what direction I went, I went into a whole lot of water. Now, by pure, merciful, providential grace, we just happened to buy a house that was, relatively speaking, on a hill. So we never got troubled by it. But everybody else did. I had a number of people in my congregation lose everything, lose our whole house through successive hurricanes that happened over the years we were there. During one of those years, we made national news. You saw what was called Manville, New Jersey. I had people in my church that lived in Manville. Manville bordered our town immediately to the east. Now, coming from Green Bay, which is a very Catholic town, when I'd want to go somewhere and get into some place, I learned this from my senior pastor, Dick Abrahamson, the policeman would stop you and you would just whip out your ministry card and you'd show it to him. And even though it said clearly Baptist on it, they would say, okay, Father, you can go through. <laughs> and this was alarming to me as I also did this, you know, I practiced as my leaders mentored me. I would show my card, okay, Father, you could go through it. I'm <clears throat> thinking, how do I explain my nun wife with me here? <laughs> Fortunately, I was never asked. Not so in New Jersey. They cared a lot about God. They feared God in Green Bay. They don't even know who he is in New Jersey. Whatever, you, whatever you've heard, it's, it's true. So I go up there to go see these families that have been washed out. And going there, trying to get to their family earlier, the whole first street, main street of Manville, New Jersey was completely underwater. The water was up in the second floor of all these stores, and there were guys in boats going down Main Street. So we waited for that to subside, and I got in just as they allowed us. And I remember driving up confidently, and there's a National Guard guy. So I get out my ministry card. Sir, you're going to have to get out of your car and walk. Yes, but I'm Father Lawrenson. <laughs> no, sir, you're going to have to get out of your car and walk. Hard walk. So I thought I was a little perturbed about that, I'll be honest. But it was a good thing. So I'm walking down to this family. And it was about, say, near a mile walk. And at least four times I saw written on these walls, on walls of a house or walls of a, of, of a garage, these blasphemous curses against God. People hated God and just had to tell the world about it because they just lost their house. On several places, there were additional things. There's signs out in front yards that people had painted. That just shows you their depth of anger. If you're coming to gawk and they would say some crude, blasphemous thing against you, and I'm just walking thinking, man, these people are very bitter and very angry and suffering. I remember walking up and getting to the house where this family was. There were seven people in the family, four kids, a couple, and a mother-in-law. And as I get up, I see this big rig out there. It's got a pump on it, and they're pumping water out of the basement. Everybody's basement was still full of water. This is just the moment they let us there. And I get there, and I'm looking, and I count 35 people from my church, Calvary Bible Church in Reddington, New Jersey, that were at that house helping that family out. That made me very proud of my church. And that's what this church did on multiple occasions. When people lost, people lost everything, people would show up to help. And I'm sure you would do that here. 1 John 3.18 says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. One of the great families in our church who had lost everything in one of these hurricanes was the Sekolesky family. I was thinking of them as I did this. 
was doing this sermon. And Jim uh, Sankoleski, one, uh, one of our deacons in our church, actually not an elder, like you call a trustee here, a very gregarious, outgoing, witnessing man, a very godly family, strong believers, lost everything in their house, lost part of his business, really, uh, you know, had a challenge and trial in their life. Uh, some years ago, the Sankoleskis, years after this, moved down to Florida. And Jim, being the kind of guy he, was, he is, uh, went two hours north to another family that actually has a connection to my church in Calvary in New Jersey, New Jersey as well, and was shuttering up their windows, protecting them, helping that family out. And as a storm comes barreling towards that city, it does a 90-degree turn and goes down and nails Sanibel, Florida, dead on, which is right where the Sankoleskis had moved, right where they had their businesses, they had a coffee house their daughter was running, and his salvage business with two trucks and all their equipment. And his daughter, Jenna, a grown daughter and husband, I knew them both, I watched them grow up, had just bought a house there two months ago. In our communication with them over the last couple of days, uh, they lost everything. Again, for the second time, can you imagine that? Their businesses and their homes for the second time. But again, in some very well-written narratives and discourses, they describe it. Um, they're trusting God, but they're asking for prayer. And I told them in an email that I would ask you to pray for the Sankoleski family who have lost everything. They're paying a mortgage on a house that doesn't even exist anymore. I don't know how all how that works. But think of the Sankoleskis. But they were out there helping people. That's what we do as believers. We put feet on our prayers, and we go out and help each other with our strength. Strength. We love our God with our strength, with, which is all that God gives us and we, that we are required to use to help others. And this is a witnessing to, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When those 35 people showed up in Manville and were helping that families out and helped others as well, what kind of a witness do you think that was for Jesus Christ? That family told me how their neighbors came up to them and they couldn't believe it. They were all still digging out weeks later. We took care of that family, got everything out they needed to get out in one day. Many hands make light work. That was a witness for Jesus Christ, our expression of love for that family. But that comment goes on when Jesus adds this line, and all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The Apostle Paul, I think, perfectly summarizes the law in relation to love in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. It's kind of small font, but I'll read that for you here. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. When we do acts of love, when you do acts of love as service at this church, those of you who work with kids, I think 35 leaders showed up for the first Awana night. That's an expression of love, passing the things of God on to the next generation. And I commend you all for doing that. And for all the other things that are done in this church, 
that are done to glorify God and build up Christians. They need to be motivated by love, above all else. Some people want to check things off on a box. Like I was a Boy Scout and I was a merit badge fanatic. And you go through all these requirements to get this badge. Some way, I think some Christians live like that, checking off the boxes. When you read the churches in Revelation, you read about the church Ephesus, the Ephesian church. They checked off every box. They were doing all the right things, but God says, one thing I have against you, you've lost your first love. They weren't doing it from a motive of love, and of course, eventually, that church will end. You need to get back to that first love. We as believers need to remind ourselves that that's the greatest commandment, the greatest thing God wants us to do. And again, we are just mirroring. We are just reflecting the love that God has for each one of us. And we reflect it back to him. And we reflect it back to others. We love because he first loved us. Well, Eleanor. Going back and forth helping Eleanor out, I was asked to paint her apartment. Bathroom, anyway. And I'm dreading the whole thing. I've got my paintbrushes. I'm going over again the George Washington Bridge. Pam wasn't going to be there, so she wasn't able to provide cover. I was actually going to have to have some discourse, you know, talk with her. And that wretched little beast she called Sonny, who I had to take to the vet one day when she was one of the times that she was in the hospital. I still remember trying to find the little terrible creature, dragging it out underneath from the bed as it took off part of my hand. And then when I got it in the car... It did unspeakable things in the car, which I won't discuss. <laughs> but I was so glad as she was arranging her, her will, she got one of her friends to agree, listen, when I pass, would you please take the cat? She said, yes, I will. Well, thank God for that. Well, as we went back and forth to Eleanor, and I had talked to her about Jesus when I felt there was an opening, and, and there was just a coldness, a wall there, one of the times I was there, and this had gone on for years, eight and a half years, and I was there doing something for her, and I just felt something different. And Eleanor looked fine. I just felt something compelling me to tell her once again about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I asked her, Eleanor, can I share some things from the Bible with you that talks about how we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And honestly, I don't even know why I said it because I didn't expect any kind of a positive response, but she said, yes. So I got her big old Byzantine Bible out, and I walked her through verses that explain the gospel and our need to receive Christ as our Savior. And then I asked, would you like to pray with me right now to receive Jesus? She said, yes. I tell you, I was shocked. So we, I walked her through the prayer and showed her the verses and prayed the prayer with her, and was quite frankly stunned. And I went home, and the next day, Pam gets a call from Eleanor. What were those verses that Rick shared with me? Tell me what those verses are. I want to look them all up again. She gave evidence that it was real. She showed a fruit of salvation in her life. Now, we didn't know, and I don't think Eleanor quite knew, that the Savior she was introduced to that night on January 26, 1999, she would meet face-to-face -face three weeks later. As I thought of the impact of Eleanor in my life, 
God really used her to teach me to love the unlovely. And I was sitting in my office at our home, and I just felt compelled to write Eleanor a letter. So I wrote her this letter in February of 1999. How are you, Eleanor? I trust that things are far better than you ever hoped or imagined might. Pam and I look forward to seeing you again one day. What was it like to see Jesus for the first time? Pretty wonderful, I would wager. Isaiah said we would be able to run and not get tired. I bet that was a real relief for you, wasn't it? All those years of suffering with emphysema, and now all of a sudden you can run and not even get tired. Everything went along quite well with your memorial service, I thought. I was able, I was able to tell all your friends about your story of how on January 26th, you admitted that you were a sinner and that you put your faith and hope in Jesus for your salvation. One of your friends and, and your niece were particularly touched by it. We do love you, Eleanor. Well, at least Pam did, and I learned to. <laughs> but I must admit, it was a bit difficult traveling to Yonkers to see you with all our busy lives and all. Pam, of course, made the trip many times, and I only every once in a while. I didn't like going to see you because, in truth, Eleanor, you were not the easiest person in the world to get along with. And, you know, she's in heaven. She couldn't get back at me with anything about that. <laughs> so, in fact, when I first met you, I found you to be loud, demanding, pushy, and obnoxious. In other words, I thought you to be the classic New Yorker I had always heard about. And quite frankly, traveling to Yonkers wasn't one of the great thrills of my life. I hope you're okay with that and the fact that we are not going to take your cat. It was good for me to choose to love someone who was not that pleasant to be around, who could do nothing of material nature for me. It was good to learn to love someone the way I know that God loves me. And in the end, Eleanor, I think God used our unconditional love for you to prove that Christ was real and that he was in our lives. I think we were like salt to you, and God used us to give you a thirst for him. I know that you did and uh, told us you did some things in your life that you shouldn't have done. And, and I know some people bitterly disappointed and hurt you. I trust that all those painful things you had in this life are now a long gone distant memory. Paul said in Romans that the sufferings we endure in this life are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us when we reach heaven. God's word also tells us that there will be no more crying in heaven as well. And there will be no more disappointments and hurts. I bet you rejoiced at that. Well, I have to go now. The cat has been sleeping on my lap. I'd like to tell you that he misses you too, but you know cats. Till we meet again, Rick. And then at the bottom I wrote, and he was literally sleeping on my lap when I wrote this. Oh, all right, we'll take the cat. <laughs> Eleanor's friend. You can't tell your friend that you won't take their cat when they're dying. But it turns out you have no trouble 
telling two people from New Jersey who you've never met before and are likely to never meet again, no, I can't take Eleanor's cat. But it turned out to be a pretty good cat in the end. <laughs> Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples.